welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Christmas has come early for fans of constitutional reform, which luckily is all of us here at the IFG, and we're hoping a lot of you listening at home too. Because this week, Gordon Brown has published a 155-page blueprint for reform, the grandly titled Commission for the UK's Future. It's packed with ideas, and Keir Starmer seems to like them. But are these proposals any good? What would they mean in practice? Will they ever make it from the page to reality? We've read the report, yes, all of it, and we'll give our judgment. We've got our own report this week, which scrutinises how well Parliament scrutinises legislation. And the answer is not very well. But that's because the government doesn't let it. So what can be done? How could scrutiny of bills be improved? And why would it be good for government to subject itself to more scrutiny? We'll take a look. In fact, there's not one, but two new IFG reports out this week. The second one runs the rule over the civil services approach to diversity and inclusion, and results are decidedly mixed. We'll run through the findings with its author. To discuss all this, I'm joined by two IFG colleagues who ploughed their way through the Brown Review, and that's senior researcher Jess Sargent and Deputy Chief Economist Tom Pope. Hi, both. Hello. Hello. And I'm delighted that we're joined today by Henry Zeffman, the Times' Associate Political Editor. Hi, Henry. How are you? Uh, I'm very well. Thanks for having me. And you're back after a stint in the US. What are the relative merits of reporting from the US and the UK? I always say to people, and um, this is going to sound really trivial, but my main two takeaways from my time in America are that it's a really big country and it's a really strange country. And (laughs) both of those very apparent facts, the more I was there, the more I realised that one one or both of those things actually explains almost anything um about it i mean it's it's um you know the uk is much smaller and covering it uh therefore is uh, more straightforward I mean, in america they have white house correspondents and congressional correspondents and national political reporters and each of those groups is far larger than the the number of people we have scrutinizing you know the whole range in the uk um obviously the executive and legislature fused here but um you know uh it means that here i do get to talk about uh, things like the Constitutional Review of the Labour Party, but also what's going on in Downing Street. And uh, that's very rewarding. Good. Well, we find it so too. Let's start with the Brown Commission then. Launched on Monday, first in Leeds, then in Edinburgh, the endorsement of a former Prime Minister and the man who wants to be the next Prime Minister. But Jess, let's start with the basics. What is the review and who commissioned it? So uh, Keir Starman uh, commissioned the review, as he reminded us uh, several times of its launch, I think, in an effort to show some some Labour unity um, on this. Um, and that was back in 2020. So it's been quite a, a long time coming. There's been uh, several years uh, working on the proposals in this report. Um, it was initially framed as a, a way to settle the future of the union. But actually, what has emerged is, is quite a lot broader than that. We've got uh, some proposals on new constitutional principles for the UK, new sorts of economic and social rights. We've got plans for more English devolution. We've got some recommendations on Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, some stuff on intergovernmental coordination, standards and ethics. The big centrepiece being the House of Lords reform. So there's a huge amount in there, perhaps more than the initial kind of terms of reference uh, would have suggested. Um, And certainly Gordon Brown is hoping that a lot of that will inform future Labour policy and make it into the Labour manifesto. Um, But I think we'll have to wait to see which areas it looks like the Labour Party is likely to prioritise. And Tom, Brown tried very hard, the Commission has tried to draw this link between constitutional reform and the economy and productivity. Do you think that was successful? It's really interesting, isn't it? I think 
the economic and constitutional questions are, are so rarely combined. You know, we've got even within the IFG, we have a set of people <laughs> that tends to think about economic questions and the set that tend to think about constitutional questions. But actually, I thought you know it, it was really welcome that the Brown Commission sort of takes seriously the link between them. And this is quite an IFG point, but I think at its root, what it's saying is the way that decisions are made and where those decisions are made matters for how good those decisions are going to be and how effective policy is going to be. And getting policies at the right level um, is really important. And so I think that that's the sense in which those those constitutional and economic questions are linked. I think one, one word of caution is that the, the big sort of motivation for the Brown Review was we've had years of economic stagnation, big regional inequality. But the solutions proposed are, because of its remit, constitutional. And I think that is that can be part of an economic strategy and part of a solution. It is not going to be the answer on its own. It can only be sort of one uh, leg of that stool, if you like. And I do wonder if there is more energy behind uh, co- constitutional solutions to economic problems, partly because um, you know, the other levers are not going to be easy, easily available to pull. There isn't going to be much money. We know that the, you know, the public finance situation looks really tight. And at that point, it's maybe more uh, attractive to say, well, rather than spend more money, where we, why don't we just change where that money is spent? And as I say, I think that could be part of the solution, but there does need to be a broader economic strategy there. And I think what will be interesting from Labour so far is, so what we've heard on economic strategy, say from Rachel Reeves, has not tended to talk that much about devolution or constitutional matters. So how uh, the Brown proposals kind of get melded into that broader economic strategy will be really interesting. And you chaired a very timely event uh, this week, which looked at what powers local areas need to, de- to deliver levelling up. That is was very much a theme of the Brown Commission. Absolutely. And it, it says the Brown Commission as one of its principles that it wants to get the right policies and right decisions being made at the right level, which is really important. And I think what, what I'll be looking out for going forwards is how these you know, quite ambitious principles, quite ambitious proposals about uh, devolving power within England, what that looks like once you get a firmer set of implementable proposals. Because I think there's a world in which what's announced here is something that's really radical. You know, it's a sort of new economic settlement, a completely new way of delivering economic policy in particular in this country. There's also a way of implementing this that will be much less radical and actually quite sort of the broad direction of travel that the current government is going down. So I think there are there are principles here that, that could be taken to, to imply a whole whole new way of delivering economic policy. But I'm I wonder if it might it might end up a bit less radical than that. And it's also always the case, isn't it, with constitutional reform that there may be unforeseen consequences. It can be quite difficult always to predict what the consequences of changing certain structures and governance sort of uh, arrangements can be. And I think although you know the Brown Commission draws a certain line between things it proposes changing and what the consequences will be, that would you know still remain to be seen how that might play out in reality. Henry, in terms of sort of coverage and media attention that this got, it, it seemed to be a, a reasonably good day for Labour. Up to a point. I mean, it depends who you talk to. Uh, there were some people in the Labour Party um, who were very frustrated by the fact that Gordon Brown was again, depending on who you talk to, tasked with either coming back uh, with a report about ways to stall the progress of Scottish nationalism, and you know certainly the eventual report didn't bear much relation to that, um, or more generously tasked with uh, writing something about English regional devolution, which the report certainly did deliver on. But uh, the moment when um, people in uh, Keir Starmer's team saw 
the recommendation to abolish the House of Lords or replace the House of Lords or however you want to frame it, they realised that was what was going to be talked about. So, yes, it was a good day for the Labour Party in terms of coverage if the headline they wanted out of it was um, about the House of Lords. Um, I don't think they're displeased that that was the headline out of it, but there are some people in Labour who you know, want the ambitious end of the spectrum that Tom describes and fear that the House of Lords has actually detracted from you know, what could potentially be really significant. I mean, I think in some ways I saw the document as a Labour version of levelling up um, and a Labour commitment to, you know, obviously they would say they're committed to levelling up in the sort of, you know, lowercase l, lowercase u sense, but actually Labour commitment to entrenching uh, the uh, devolution uh, both of, of institutions and power, crucially, within uh, England that the government is, is at least rhetorically committed to and has set the ball rolling on. Um, so, you know, yes, a good day for Labour in terms of people are talking about what they're saying and that's only going to become more the case um, for as long as they maintain a poll lead like this, right? As we get closer to a general election, people are going to scrutinise much more closely what it is that a Keir Starmer government would do. Um, but that lingering question over whether they actually really intended this to become a three-day story about what they're going to do or not do with the House of Lords. We're going to come back to that. Tom, I just wanted to pick up that point that, that Henry made about actually there's quite a lot of similarity in the diagnosis, at least of the problem, uh, I thought, between the, the Brown Commission and what was in the levelling up white paper, which you've been doing a lot of work on previously. I completely agree. I think in many ways it felt like you were reading a sort of a redux of the a slightly shorter version of the <laughs> levelling up white paper. Um, and one that I completely agree, both on the diagnosis and even on some of the solution. Actually, many I don't think there was much in there that you know, Michael Gove would have disagreed with, to, to be honest. And I think what that does point to, I completely agree with, with Henry, is that regardless of, of who wins the next election, there is going to be a, a consistency of, at least in direction, um, between this government and the one that's in power after the next election. There is now a broad cross-party commitment to um, further devolution within England, broadly committed to similar institutions that the mayoral combined authorities are, they seem to be the, the way that Labour is going as well. I think that that is really welcome. The work that we've done in the past has shown how policy churn, the change of um, approach, change of institutions has really undermined regional policy over the past 40 years. A new government comes along, it sort of sees what the old government has done and kind of abolishes that and invents something quite similar, loses a bunch of institutional memory. I think one really positive uh, thing coming out of this and the white, and the white paper is that I think there is going to be that um, consistency of a broad approach, even if one ends up being a bit more ambitious than the other. And as you were saying, Jess, the, the report covers quite a broad range of different subjects, actually, in the end. And, and within that, we at the RFG were pleased to note some, some uh, comments on civil service reform, where, again, mm -hmm. actually, some of the diagnosis uh, of problems is, seems to be shared between Labour and the government, which is, again, from our point of view, good in terms of long-term consistency on that. Um, let's just go back to the House Lords point, Henry. You tweeted that you were struck by how sort of vague the, the conception of an elected second chamber is within the report. And, I mean, in some ways it was curiously specific. I mean, we were told they think there should be 200 members, which seems an <laughs> odd detail to have to, to, to land on. Maybe it's an easy detail to land on. But um, tell us more what you, what you well, were struck I thought, I thought it was, um, you're right, it was, it was somehow simultaneously specific and vague in, in equally unhelpful ways. I mean, the 200 point, uh, it's not clear to me that, um, unless you want to radically change 
the scope of what the House of Lords does. It's not clear to me that 200 people would be enough to actually fulfil Gordon Brown's uh, vision of this sort of um, safeguard of both English regional uh, views and also uh, the integrity of the constitutional settlement between England and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. Um, but then it gets to the question of actually, what is Gordon Brown's vision for this second chamber? Um, there was a lot of sort of um, why the existing upper chamber doesn't work. Not many people are going to disagree with that, although, you know, some of the people who sort of criticise, uh, including Labour peers, uh, you know, this is a priority. Clearly, they do actually just like the existing settlement because it, it works for them. Um, but, you know, it's not controversial to say the existing House of Lords doesn't work. Both major parties have been committed to reforming it, at least loosely, for some time. Um, but if I if I were Keir Starmer, who, you know, as he said at this launch, asked Gordon Brown for things that could be delivered in a first term, I'd be a bit annoyed that he came back uh, with um, uh, uh, something that was capable of both grabbing headlines and also not in its current form, capable of being implemented because it still needs some long process of consultation. My favourite part of the report, by the way, um, it was on something like page 130. It was very deep into it. It was a footnote. You're just proving um, you read it, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> well, I controlled it. Uh, someone pointed out this to me, I, I, I'll confess. Um, uh, it was a footnote in which the only peer on Gordon Brown's commission, there are about 12 people on this commission, um, Paul, Paul Murphy, Lord Murphy, uh, who was Welsh and Northern Ireland Secretary under Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, uh, he objected. He, uh, he registered a formal objection to that bit of the report that he was a commissioner on and said that he believes in a partly elected, partly appointed second chamber along the lines uh, that have been um, discussed in the past. But look, I think if I if I were Labour I, and, and looking at Lords Reform, I would have started from what do we think the powers of a second chamber should and shouldn't be? And then I think you work backwards to the composition from that. Um the other sort of slightly strange thing is all these, Gordon Brown seems to love calling things councils and something of the nations and regions. So I think at various points he proposed the creation of a council of England, a council of the United Kingdom. Those are different things. Um, a senate of the nations and regions and an assembly of the nations and regions. Or I'm slightly getting confused because there's so many of them, but it was... Um, absurd i think um and you know from the man in his speech who said he was sort of ending the the dead hand of centralization to then propose all sorts of central bodies coordinating what these local bodies were doing um you know i think he's going to have to go to some some stretch to convince people that's not just a, a sort of boom time for bureaucracy to be honest jess you're leading our constitutional review for us at the moment what did you make of the house of lords reform proposals well, I said in a blog before the proposals were released that uh, the review needed to focus on uh, the functions of the House of Lords rather than the form. And I think actually, to be fair to them, to some extent, they do have a fairly um, developed idea of what the House of Lords should be doing. Um, they suggest a role for it protecting the constitution and standards. And it's interesting that in some areas they have suggested um weakening the power of the, of the second chamber um, in by removing the power that the House of Lords currently has to delay ordinary legislation. And that's in part to assuage concerns about um, disrupting the balance between the House of Commons and the House of Lords that, that might arise. But on the other hand, it's also given uh, proposes to give the new second chamber this um, quite 
revolutionary power to block um, legislation that relates to certain parts of the constitution. And I think for me, that is one of the, the most radical things about this report is that it tries to create some form of entrenchment for the constitution, which is notoriously difficult um, in our kind of uncodified system. Um, and I do think it's it's a very interesting idea. I think there are some uh, challenges for exactly how it will work in practice, not least trying to figure out what what are constitutional acts um, in in the UK constitution? But I think certainly that's a problem that we've identified through our review of the UK constitution: the kind of uh, vulnerability of, for example, the devolution statutes uh, when faced with a majority in the House of Commons. Having said that, I would agree with Henry that uh, perhaps, although I've said. Uh, function over form. We probably do need a bit more on form um, because that is where proposals have fallen down before. Um, you know, it says that this chamber should be elected, but it doesn't um, discount the possibility of maybe having some appointed members and maybe having some ministerial members. And as is often is the case, the devil is in the detail here. And unless they can build support around their specific proposals for what that chamber would look like, I think they're going to have a real challenge actually implementing it. I mean, I imagine they left that detail out almost deliberately. On purpose, yeah. Because they knew that as soon as you have it there, yeah. it will be picked apart and there was many different views of the House of Lords as there are at least members of the House of Lords. So. I think that might be right. <laughs> um, Henry, notably, there was no mention of electoral reform for the Commons. Uh, talk about the Lords being elected by a different system. Do you think that's a, a notable absence? Certainly. Um, Keir Starmer doesn't support it is the, is the most straightforward reason for that. And there was quite a lot of dialogue between, I'm, I'm not saying, I don't think Gordon Brown supports it either, but but there was quite a lot of dialogue between Brown and Starmer in the run-up to the publication of this report about making sure that things didn't appear in there that Keir Starmer didn't support. So um, uh, I think it was never going to appear in there even if Gordon Brown supported it, which I don't think he does either. I mean, there was a big row about this in the run-up to an at Labour Party conference uh, just gone in September um, because the Labour Party membership, at least as expressed via CLP delegates to conference, do support electoral reform. Um, Starmer has slightly surprised me with the firmness with which he doesn't. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't think it's on the table. And look, the perennial... Um, if slightly obvious reason why electoral reform in the Commons doesn't happen, um, you know, Labour are now 20 odd points ahead in the polls and think they're going to win a majority. And if the system is capable, despite how it might have felt for Labour politicians in, in the past 12 years of delivering a Labour government, um, they're not going to get into government and then tear that system up and, you know, potentially um, usher in a new system which would lead to the fracturing of political parties as we know it and a complete remodelling of how of how government works. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was a notable absence, but I, I don't think uh, we'll see electoral reform as, as Labour Party policy anytime soon. So, Jess, what happens next? What, Where does this report go? So I think this was another area where the report was a bit vague, um, where they perhaps didn't want to make a decision on things. There was a commitment to consult and there is a section at the end that talks about consulting the public widely. It throws in the idea of citizens' assemblies. Um, but... There's very little detail about what that would actually look like in practice. And at the same time, there's also an ambition to have the proposals ready for the Labour manifesto or for to be implemented as soon as a future Labour government got into power, if they did, um, which creates some challenges because 
fundamentally good public consultation and citizens' assemblies cost quite a lot of money. Um, and it's not clear whether there is the opportunity uh, for the party to actually do that until they get their hands on the machinery of government. So I think that's one question. I think there is so much in this report that even with all of the political will in the world, even if the Labour leader wanted to adopt this whole scale, it's just going to be far too much for any future government to implement in the short term. So I think we will have to, we'll see over time which areas the leader's office is likely to prioritise, which areas will, will feature um, as key priorities in the manifesto and which might kind of slowly uh, kind of go to go go into the background a little bit as kind of broader ambitions but not immediate priorities so I think we're really just going to have to see exactly how this um, takes shape and I think this conversation will, will continue up until the next election. Thanks everyone I should say also on Monday lunchtime we'll be hosting a great event on how or maybe whether the House of Lords can be reformed so do check out our website and tune in or better still come along to the RFG and join us. Now, as discussed, Labour has plans to reform the House of Lords. One of the roles that the Lords plays is in a detailed scrutiny of legislation, which is the topic of a new RFG report. So after scrutinising the Brown Commission, let's scrutinise parliamentary scrutiny. Jess, you've been busy this week. This is another one for you. Tell us about your new report. Um, so we have a new report out um, that's looking at the legislative process um, and it's looking how to empower Parliament in that. So one of the key themes of the review of the Constitution that came out is this uh, slightly strange situation where technically the UK Parliament holds all the power in the UK Constitution. We have this concept of parliamentary sovereignty, um, but in practice, a government with a majority can exercise a lot of that. And I think this is particularly true in, in legislation, where I think there's quite broad agreement that the legislative process doesn't provide the opportunities for Parliament, particularly the House of Commons, to really exert a strong influence on, on the government. Um, but it's not necessarily, hasn't been reforms to try and, and remedy that situation. And we see a lot of bills that pass um, with kind of very little challenge, um, particularly in the House of Commons. We wanted to take a, a view across the whole of the legislative process. Now, obviously, quite quickly, we get into sort of technical, nerdy parts of parliamentary process here. Um, but I think think the process is is very important. What we want to think about is how to maximise opportunities um, for MPs to be able to, to challenge the government. And a couple of areas we identified as particular areas for reform was one around pre-legislative scrutiny. So that is when a bill is published um, before it's formally introduced um, into Parliament. And we found really widespread consensus that that actually worked really well. We found um, that eight parliamentary committees had recommended that it should be an integral part of the process. But because it remains up to the government to decide um, whether or not it does that, it wasn't taking that up. So we made some recommendations about how to kind of um, make more use of that and formalise it. And the second area we looked at is committee stage. So this is meant to be the area for very detailed scrutiny um, of, of legislation. Um, we have these things called public bill committees where a group of MPs are meant to sit and pour over the detail. But actually, we found that in a lot of cases, um, they are put there by the whips. They're not necessarily that expert or interested in it. Um, and there wasn't necessarily a really high quality of scrutiny there. Um, the solution we've proposed to that um, is to give a greater role for select committees. We've suggested that they should be able to uh, request a select committee stage uh, where they can take evidence. Um, they can 
express a view of the committee that can then inform the process. And this is in a way kind of a continuation of some of those rights reforms that, that we saw um, in kind of 2009, 2010 that, that had proved really effective in um, making select committees a really important uh, mechanism to, to challenge the government and have genuine impact. Thanks very much. Um, Henry, I'm not sure Rishi Sunak would agree after the couple of weeks he's just had that Parliament doesn't get enough opportunity to change <laughs> legislation. Um, so we're talking about government ceding powers here to Parliament. It's not going to happen, is it? No, <laughs> in a word. But I mean, I think um, I think one question here, with the exception of sort of blockbuster legislation or uh, pieces of legislation where for political reasons, backbenchers might want to give the government a bloody nose for the sake of giving them a bloody nose. Um, I don't know if MPs want these powers, and I, and I don't mean that as a criticism of them necessarily, more as an observation. I mean, one of the things in your report was that they're spending less time scrutinising legislation than they used to. And I think that is, um, in part at least, a symptom of something that's definitely true of MPs in the past decade, if not longer, which is that they've changed how they conceive of their roles. Um, and I think that has many, uh, you know, that's 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 a, um, a trend with many parents, um, you know, be it, be it the way that political parties select MPs, um, the consequences of the expenses scandal, um, you know, growing uh, public and internal pressure not to hold second jobs. Each and all of those things might be good things in and of themselves, but I think you've ended up with um, growing numbers of MPs who see the most important thing that they do uh, being their work in their constituency and their constituency surgeries and um, basically being a sort of super councillor who then gets the opportunity to stand up in the House of Commons and uh, say to the Prime Minister, what are you going to do for my constituent uh, or my group of constituents who are experiencing whatever it may be? And I don't think that necessarily coexists particularly well with um, having the kinds of MP or MPs who would want to sit on a bill committee or indeed a select committee that would take evidence on a piece of bill for, for, for a long period of time. I think that's a shame, personally, though I can see why it's developed in that way. But I think until you get MPs who want to do the nitty gritty of legislation, of course, there's loads who do, but there's, I really do think there's loads who don't. Um, I think you will struggle to have um, the, the scrutiny of legislation that it absolutely demands. I think those incentives are something that we, that we do address in the report. And I yeah. think you, you are right. Um, you know, if you're a very busy MP and you have to decide where to prioritise your time if you think that something is a, not a worthwhile exercise then that's not where you're going to put it but I think there's a sort of um, it's a bit of a self-perpetuating cycle yeah, in a way so, in that yeah. if bill scrutiny isn't effective if you know bill committees aren't effective then you know I don't think people are going to prioritise them whether it's you know, it's a kind of chicken and an egg problem to some extent. But I think there are things that you can do within the process to empower MPs with the tools and also the resources, the support as well for policy. That's another thing that we kind of raise um, to to be able to have more of an impact. And then you might see them kind of uh, in this is, but, but, you know, I'm aware this is an optimistic view, um, but you, you might see them take a, a greater interest in those sorts of mechanisms. I, th I mean, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I think it like so many things in Parliament, it does come back to the incentive structure mm. that comes from having having you know MPs uh, or the you know the government being drawn from the legislature and most though not all MPs would like to be in the government and then they're trying to I mean one um, bill committee you mentioned whips putting people there I remember once <laughs> um, asking an MP why a colleague of theirs had a knighthood because I really could not work <laughs> out what this uh, I'm going to try and keep it vague what this MP had ever done to justify it and they said 
They'd agreed to serve on a particularly notoriously dull bill committee. Uh, Let me guess, a ex- hybrid bill committee? Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a particularly dull <laughs> bill committee. Um, and or maybe it was a series of bill committees. And, um, and the price was, uh, was the knighthood. So, um, <laughs> yeah, for as long as that's the sort of way in which, you know, all people, the MPs, the whips, whoever, the government, treat, um, treat legislative, legislative scrutiny, it's, um, yeah, it's going to remain in the, in the state that you you describe but i mean surely uh, we were discussing the incentives on the individual mp backbencher and, and i think you're exactly right henry and the sort of the trends you identified disincentivizing getting into detailed uh legislative scrutiny if there was ever a golden age when mps were mm-hmm. more <laughs> into it um but surely from the government's point of view actually when it comes down to it if scrutiny ends up producing better legislation if they are less likely to fall flat on their faces you know in six months time when there's some error in the legislation or some unforeseen consequence that wasn't picked up as a result of the scrutiny process being rushed or lack of engagement and surely it's in the government's interests to do this better you'd hope so i mean i think it's probably a challenge to journalists like me as well uh because if the government probably rightly assesses that every time there's a significant rebellion uh, in the House of Commons, it's going to be treated as a uh, blow to the authority of the Prime Minister, mm-hmm. a crisis for a certain mm-hmm. cabinet minister, or whatever it is. Then I can see why, uh, you know, and the pros and cons of better legislation slash, you know, media crisis. Um, you know, I can see I can see how those might weigh in a different way to how how we'd want them to as concerned citizens who want better legislation. Um, but yeah, I mean, you'd like to think that. I mean, maybe it's partly also a problem with um, the volatility of politics. I mean, if 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 Rishi Sunak were sitting there thinking he's going to be prime minister for a decade, uh, absolutely, I'm sure he'd like the legislation that's passed to be um, uh, to be as watertight as possible. But in practice, I think he's thinking that he has 18 months. He wants um, as few opportunities for rebellion as possible, and then you know, if he somehow comes out the other side as prime minister with a renewed mandate, then perhaps he might stop thinking um you know more abstractly about about the process well our recommendations will be sitting on the table ready for him to take off joining us now for her podcast debut is ifu researcher maddie bishop hi maddie hi hannah and Maddie's with us because she has just written a new IFG report, which takes a look at the state of diversity and inclusion in the civil service and the government's strategy to improve it. Maddie, is there a strategy? The eternal question. There is certainly a document. It was published earlier this year. It runs until 2025. Um, and its main focus is aligning the civil services approach to diversity and inclusion with a kind of wider levelling up agenda. Um, so there's much more focus on officials from working class backgrounds um, and it's really kind of goes hard on the relocation agenda, moving officials outside of Whitehall into the regions. And so is that the main way in which it differs from previous efforts to think about diversity and inclusion? So the previous diversity and inclusion strategy for the civil service um, was in 2017, and it did include an action on people from working class backgrounds. They were basically um, developing some new metrics to actually measure socioeconomic diversity, um, which the government did do. But that wasn't the focus of the strategy. It very much was focused on um, legally protected characteristics, things like ethnicity and disability, um, and it set out some clear actions around setting up task forces and targets to try and increase the level of representation of ethnic minority people and disabled people in the senior civil service. Um, while in contrast, the 2022 strategy that came out this year 
has this framing of moving beyond protective characteristics to deliver for all. Um, notably includes only one action specifically targeted towards officials who are disabled. Um, and it's quite unambitious. It's basically continuing to roll out an existing scheme. Um, and there is just one mention of people from ethnic minority backgrounds um, in the forward and no specific actions targeted towards those individuals, um, which is quite a big difference from having these being the main focus of the strategy in 2017 to now barely getting a mention. And can you, but can you see the logic in, in this shift in approach? Well, it's certainly welcome to be incorporating um, uh, all, of, all of these actions and this focus on officials from working class backgrounds. Um, the Social Mobility Commission published a report in 2021, which is really fascinating and important work that showed that there are real barriers to progression in the civil service um, for people from working class backgrounds. Um, in some ways, we think that the government could be more ambitious um, and engage with more of the recommendations in that report. So in that respect, very welcome. Our analysis also shows there's still a lot of work to be done on protected characteristics like ethnicity and disability in the civil service. Um, both gaps in representation that still remain, particularly at senior level, um, and then also on inclusion. So talking to officials from kind of a range of different backgrounds across the civil service, um, that feeling that their views are kind of valued, um, they're supported regardless of their background, um, and that they're being involved in decision making. Lots of officials still suggest that that's very much lacking. Um, and that's something that the government should really care about. Ministers talk a lot about wanting more diversity of thought in the civil service. Um, Michael goes to actually lecture in 2020, for instance, he talks about that. Um, the latest civil service staff sur survey showed really worryingly that only 55% of officials feel safe to challenge the way things are done in their organisation. Um, and that drops still lower for officials from certain backgrounds. Um, so I think particularly um, officials with very severe long-term disabilities um, and officials from who are black and are from backgrounds other than African and Caribbean, it's very, very low. Um, so the government should be taking action to try and ensure that those people in the civil service feel that they're able to um, contribute their perspectives um, to the work that government carries out, um, which is, after all, for a very diverse society. And as you say, you, you spoke to lots of people um, about this, you know, to, to, to pull together this report. Some of the accounts you heard weren't particularly encouraging. No. Um, so, yeah, we had conversations with officials from a range of different backgrounds and seniority. Um, we had Stories of kind of outright discrimination, which are very much supported by some of the data in the staff survey, um, particularly things around performance processes. Um, but kind of even beyond that, just lots of people talking about the very alienating experience of being the only person from their background and maybe their whole division of the department not feeling very supported in that, feeling that they have to speak and act in a way that emulates white middle class colleagues um, in order to succeed. Interestingly, we also talked to some of the cabinet um, office officials who worked on the strategy. Um, and they were kind of arguing that protected characteristics still come under this broader definition of diversity that they talk about in the strategy, um, that the strategy is a vision or a framework and that it's up to departments to set out kind of some more specific targets and objectives um, within that framework, which could potentially include those relating to protected characteristics like ethnicity and disability. Um, but that's something that came out of our conversations with officials and not something that's set out very clearly in the strategy itself. Interesting. Henry, you're a seasoned Whitehall watcher. How big a sort of issue do you think diversity and inclusion is for the civil service in terms of its ability to get its job done? Absolutely. Uh, it's it's important. I mean, you know, the, the findings that Maddie was talking about there from both the staff survey, but from the sounds of it, the conversations you've had sound, you know, like they shouldn't be happening in any workplace. But obviously, uh, you know, Whitehall as... Um, the place that sets the rules for every workplace in some sense, you know, should should be, um, you know, 
at, at the other end of the spectrum rather than, you know, an example of, of how things can go wrong. I mean, I think it's very interesting the way um, the way you talk about the reorientating of um, Whitehall's focus um, away from the protected characteristics language of the Equality Act towards, um, you know, more the sort of uh, more class, but also Michael Gove diversity of thought. I mean, that's absolutely, I feel, consistent with the way that the government is approaching these issues um, you know, for the public in terms of the Equalities Office, the kinds of people they have appointed to the Social Mobility Commission that you mentioned. Um, and um, so I think it's also a sign of, of um, you know, certainly in, in there are some bits of government, um, some strategies from government that ministers have complained in the past, you know, or you know, that, that sort of feels completely inconsistent with our approach. But this feels um, a very, you know, 2022 conservative um uh, approach to diversity and inclusion um and um you know for good or ill that's that's certainly interesting to me yeah and i mean presumably there aren't necessarily votes in doing this but if it's about making government work better presumably it's something that politicians should be paying attention to yeah absolutely although i mean and i'm not saying this is an example of it but i think parts of the conservative party this is one of the sort of minor fault lines in the party parliamentary party your parts of them probably think there are votes in not doing this um and um you know one one of the sort of themes of um before it became taken over by economics one of the themes of the summer leadership contest was you know quotes unquote uh, war on woke and culture war issues and the extent to which the conservatives ought to um pick a side more uh, effusively in that debate and obviously the side that they're being encouraged to pick by some MPs is the sort of not anti-diversity and inclusion that's not how they'd have it but a sort of direction that makes diversity and inclusion more about uh, class background and diversity of thought than it is about protected characteristics which is why I find this document um, so interesting this report so interesting is because it makes me realise that to a greater extent than I'd appreciated uh the government has actually managed to to get whitehall thinking in that way as well just this um sort of uh area of 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 thinking falls into the cabinet office's remit like many things mm-hmm. um do you think the government has enough bandwidth to focus on this right now i think it does have the bandwidth if it wants to make it a priority and i think um that's the important thing it's all well and good to kind of publish a strategy but to actually implement that and to make changes off the back of that requires resources um both in terms of manpower um you need people to ensure that departments are taking the actions that the strategy requires um them to do and that needs to be coordinated at the center hence why that's likely to to sit with the cabinet office but I think, um, as Maddie's report points out, and kind of speaking to some of the the points that Henry's made about the um, the divides within the Conservative Party, as Maddie says, we're not quite sure exactly where Rishi Sunak stands on this at the moment. I think that is still to be seen. And so whether he's going to make it a priority, whether he's going to give it the resources that it needs, um, I think is, is going to be um, something that we'll just have to wait and see how this develops. And Maddie, is it a question of, of big resource? I mean, what needs to be done to improve things? What are our top recommendations? I think most of them aren't particularly resource intensive. Um, The first one is just out of those conversations we had with cabinet office officials about um, departments having a role in setting those more specific objectives, which could include targets for people from underrepresented backgrounds. It needs to be clearer about the role of departments in doing that and provide more guidance for it. 
Um, and then it's for departments, I think, to be setting those targets that fit the needs for their requirements. Um, we also think that just rhetorically, the Cabinet Office could do more to recognise the outstanding disparities based on protected characteristics. Um, the fact that it kind of avoids mention of them here isn't very helpful. Um, we've talked to lots of officials from those backgrounds who feel quite alienated by this approach. And I think there's still quite a lot of work for the Cabinet Office to do to bring those staff networks on side. And after all, that kind of grassroots work, uh, work is often what drives a lot of the, this agenda um, in the civil service. Um, and it needs to commit to some more specific changes and, and more detailed plans on inclusion for sure, because our research does show that that seems to be a big area. I mean, that does fit into some of its other existing plans. So the um, Inclusive Britain report, which also came out earlier this year, was about kind of race in Britain more widely. And part of that um, proposed uh, an inclusion at work panel, um, basically a panel made up of experts and practitioners to basically research, trial, investigate some of the practical actions that organisations can take that do genuinely improve inclusion in the workplace. Um, so that's an existing plan the government has. It just doesn't seem to be very well integrated into its plans for the civil service. I think it needs to be clearer about that and more specific about which actions it will be investigating and trialling and on what timetable. And finally, I think, as I mentioned earlier, there could be more ambition on socioeconomic background um, in the civil service. I think it should go back to that Social Mobility Commission report from 2021 um, and look at some of its recommendations, particularly around policy and delivery in the civil service. There's this big disparity still between uh, lots of officials from working class backgrounds work in delivery at junior level and find it hard to make it into policy at more senior levels. Um, so there's a kind of whole section of that report, which um, the strategy doesn't seem to have engaged with as much. And um, we really think it should. Very interesting. Thank you, Maddie. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Jess Sargent, Tom Pope, Maddie Bishop, and especially Henry Zeffman. And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms, including Tom's event on levelling up. And please do leave us a review. Head to our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, where you can find Maddie's report, Jess's report, Jess's Brown Review Review, and details for how to sign up to our House of Lords reform event on Monday. So after last week's podcast was crammed with extremely clumsy football references, I'm pleased to say we made it to the end of the podcast, having barely mentioned the World Cup. But then I'm told there's quite a big game on Saturday night. Have a good weekend, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>